Our Bible reading this morning is from Judges chapter 16. Uh, But it's been a wee while since we've looked at Samson. This is the concluding part of the Samson cycle. So, a wee resume. At Samson's birth, his parents were told by God that he was going to be special, a Nazarite, set apart for God. No razor had to touch his head. Against his parents' wishes, he took a Philistine bride. This the beginning of God's using Samson to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. On the way to that wedding, a lion came upon him. So did the Spirit of God, and he tore it apart. Then at the wedding, there was a riddle contest. Samson divulged his secret to his bride-to-be, who promptly told the Philistine guests, and Samson lost out. Thereafter, hostilities with the Philistines increased. Again, the Spirit came upon him. He slew 30 Philistines. It continued, and at the Battle of Jawbone Hill, again the Spirit came upon Samson, and 1,000 Philistines were killed. Thereafter, Samson was almost dying of thirst. He cried out to God, who provided water and sustained him. And that brings us to Judges 16. One day, Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn, we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted, he lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Some time later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him, so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh thongs that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh thongs that had not been dried, and she tied him with them, with men hidden in the room. <coughs> excuse, excuse me. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the thongs as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, If anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. 
So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then with men hidden in the room, she called him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, Until now you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, If you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pin, I will become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric, and tightened it with the pin. Again she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called the man to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him. And his strength left him. Then she called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding in the prison but the hair in his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood. 
bracing himself against them, his right hand in one and his left hand in the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel 20 years. Let's pray. O merciful God, our Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp for our feet and a light to our path. We pray that through Jesus Christ, the light of the world, you will open and enlighten our hearts, that we should clearly and purely understand your word. And so understanding, seek to live in accordance with it. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In Mr. Herd's class, I will be as quiet as all the silent denizens of Neptune's watery kingdom. That was the line Mr. Herd, the principal history teacher, gave you to write out 100 times if he caught you talking in class. Technically, it wasn't actually a line. It was more than a line in your jotter, but no one ever took that up with Mr. Herd, not wanting another 100 lines. Mr. Herd used repetition to stress the importance of listening rather than talking. The importance of listening to what he said. The writer of the book of Judges uses repetition in the same way, though in a more subtle fashion. Three times in the Samson cycle, we read of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Samson, enabling him in Judges 14 to tear a line apart then later strike down 30 Philistines, and then in Judges 15 at Jawbone Hill to strike down another 1,000 Philistines, beginning the deliverance of God's people. Other judges in the book, Othniel in Judges 3, Gideon in Judges 6, and Jephthah in in Judges 11, are also mentioned as having the Spirit coming upon them, but only once. Samson's connection with the Spirit of the Lord is given special emphasis. Repetition stresses the importance of what is being said with regard to the presence of the Spirit. And so also rings an alarm bell when he's not mentioned in the first part of Judges 16, which I invite you to turn to now. For the first half of the chapter... God is not there for Samson. Repetition, then omission, is intended to underscore the gravity of this. Judges 15 ends with Samuel, sorry, with Samson dependent on the Lord 
and sustained by him. In Judges 15 and verse 18, we read, because he was very thirsty, Samson that is, he cried out to the Lord. Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. Whereas, in Judges 16, in the first 21 verses, we're presented with a self-sufficient Samson without God. There can be no more tragic words than these. Without God. In New Testament terms, without Christ, without a saviour. Judges 16 is eloquent in its silence about the spirit of the Lord. Depicting Samson without the spirit in stark contrast to what has gone before in Judges 14 and 15. Indeed, the closing verse of chapter 15, which reads, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines, seems to indicate that for all practical purposes, Samson's time as a judge of Israel is over. A sorry end. A sorry, sorry end to a man set apart for God. This is indeed the stuff of tragedy. And that's what we open with, the tragedy of the Lord's servant. Having been on the mountaintop at the end of chapter 15, in close communion with God, calling to him and being sustained by him, Samson takes a long descent down into Gaza, where he spends the night with a prostitute. And if we consider ourselves immune from such falls, in whatever circumstances, we delude ourselves. Samson's particular weakness was women. We will know what our own particular weakness is. As I reminded Park Kids, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I repeat, self-control. A lack of self-control, indulging self, can only bring self-harm sooner or later. The citizenry of Gaza are tipped off at Samson's whereabouts. And the Gaza Urban Defence Force springs into action. The lion wait, ready to pounce. But Samson gets up during the night, grabs the city doors and side posts, bar and all, hefts them on his shoulders and trudges off to deposit them near Hebron. As at his wedding party, which led to his betrayal by his bride-to-be, Samson and women are a bad mix. Once again, it gets him into a tight corner. He uses his great strength and escapes. 
this time. Enter Delilah. For Samson, it's love. Here we go again. For Delilah, it isn't about love. It's about money. We hear of our conversation with the Philistine rulers and each of them offering 1,100 shekels of silver if she can lure Samson into divulging the secret of his strength. Given that there were five major Philistine cities, that probably equated to 5,500 shekels or 140 pounds of silver. The name of the game is Get Rich Quick. And Delilah is in it to win it. And Samson seems to treat it just like that. Like a game. He looks to be enjoying himself. Having tied Samson up, three times Delilah calls out, the Philistines are upon you. Only for Samson to snap fresh thongs, new ropes, and then demolish Delilah's loom. Secure in the knowledge of his saving strength. But Delilah keeps pressing Samson. Cool and calculating, she uses the relational argument about trust and intimacy. How can you say I love you if you won't confide in me? You're just making a fool of me. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. We've been here before. These are the same tactics employed by his bride-to-be at his wedding, whereby she wheedled out of him the secret of the riddle and promptly passed it on to his Philistine guests. Further repetition to impress upon us the importance of what we are hearing. Samson has not learned from his mistakes. Do we? In our walk with the Lord, do we guard against our weaknesses? Do we guard against that which leads us into sin? Leads us to do things that the enemy can use against us. Things that are not for our health, but for our harm. Do we remember that enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour? Once again, Samson divulges a secret. He tells Delilah, because I have been a Nazarite set apart for God since birth, if my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. He acknowledges he has been set apart for God. Is he living like it? Where is God featuring in his life at this juncture? The God his parents had surely told him of. 
The God who'd appeared to tell them of Samson's birth appeared to them in fire, causing them to fall down to the ground in holy fear. The Lord God who had blessed Samson sent his spirit upon him. Is Samson living in the light of this awesome reality? Or living most of the time as if there is no God? Christians are set apart for God. Certain things follow from that. Last week, we stood and acknowledged this, gave profession to our faith, and heard these words read. Do you promise, depending on the grace of God, to confess Christ with your lips, to serve him in your daily work, and to walk in his ways all the days of your life? We are set apart for God. Are we living accordingly? Samson, having divulged his secret, Delilah tells the Philistines to come back. She now knows everything. And then, putting Samson to sleep on her lap, she has his seven braids shorn and begins to subdue him. And so we are told his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Samson awakes with his customary optimism, thinking, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. I say again, repeating myself for emphasis, there are no more tragic words than these. Words told to God's people, Israel. Words repeated. Why? Because Samson was intended as a mirror for Israel. God wanted God's people, Israel, to see themselves in Samson, a nation raised up by God, set apart for him, but who plays around with other gods, other loves, and yet always expects to have the Lord's presence blithely assuming that all is well and that God will always be there for her. She is a people who does not know that the Lord may depart from her. Just as a church may believe that God would never write Ichabod, the glory has departed above its denominational headquarters. Whether to Israel of old or the church of today, Samson's tragedy still speaks, saying, take care, lest like Samson you go your own way, go after other loves and forfeit the divine presence the tragic effects of which are portrayed by Samson at an individual level. The judge of Israel subjected to a calculated humiliation in the culture of the time 
grinding grain was the work of slaves or women. But as verse 22 hints, Samson was not to remain a hairless trophy of the Philistines. We move on to the reality of the Lord revealed. The reality of the Lord revealed. As the story continues, Dagon, god of the Philistines, takes center stage. The rulers of the Philistines assemble to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our god has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Praises echoed by the Philistine people who declare, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. Dagon is getting all the credit for what has transpired. A false God is getting praise that belongs to the Lord alone. Praise is being heaped at the feet of a helpless image rather than given to the living Lord. And it is his servants, Samson's waywardness, that has brought this situation to be. Dagon is praised. He's lifted up. The Lord God does not get a mention. Samson's waywardness reflects on his God. That our actions, our waywardness, our sin can bring our God into disrepute, can bring the gospel into disrepute, is something that should give us pause for thought. I include myself as I read these words. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Folk read what you write, distorted or true. What is the gospel according to you? But as important as that is, the really essential thing for us to see is that in the outworking of the chapter, with Samson bringing the temple crashing down, Dagon is revealed as the nonentity, the false god that he really is. Samson brings the temple crashing down. Dagon is unable to prevent this. And we know therefore that the Praise showered on him is pure poppycock. We know it was the absence of the Lord, not the power of Dagon, that accounts for Samson's shame. We know who the real God is. We know where the real power lies. We know the Lord revealed to us by his word here in Judges 16. We know his reality. We know the kind of God he is. The reality revealed in the latter part of the chapter as we will see as we consider the readiness of the Lord to help. The readiness of the Lord to help. In both Judges 15 and 16, prayer is the turning point as Samson calls out to the Lord. 
And in both situations, this, ha this happens when Samson seems defeated. In Judges 15, he's dying of thirst. In Judges 16, he's a blind prisoner, a figure of fun brought out for the entertainment of the Philistines. In both cases, the Lord is the God who hears the cry of his servant in desperate circumstances and answers him. He shows his readiness to help. Carol Barth said that to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. The disorder of the world for Barth was the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party who he stood against. For Samson, it was the rise of pagan Philistia and the vaunting of their God who he stood against. Big, big issues. Forgive me if I've said this before. Sometimes you will hear folks saying, or asking rather, for a wee prayer. There is no such thing. Prayer is never a small thing. Throughout the Bible, in the face of cataclysmic conflict and dire desperation, God's people pray. The Psalms alone are full of it. Surely an encouragement to us, if we needed any, to pray against the disorders of the world. Encouragement to find more opportunities to pray, to encourage one another to pray, knowing the readiness of the Lord to help, even in the most negative of circumstances. In Judges 16, the Lord's answer, his help, comes not only in the midst of desperate need, but in the wake of miserable failure. Surely another incentive to us to pray, knowing the circumstances in which the Lord is ready to help. Help Samson. This is a Samson who would rather fool around with Delilah than protect God's gift. This is a Samson who faith, faithlessly gave away God's strength in order to court a treacherous lover. It is this Samson, this faithless, foolish, fallen Samson, whom the Lord hears as he cries, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistine for my two eyes. The, the readiness of the Lord to help his grace towards us in sending Jesus to die for us on the cross is surely the ultimate example of that readiness to help. An unmerited gift. Only by grace can we enter. Only by grace can we stand. Not by our human endeavor, but by the blood of the Lamb. Into your presence you call us. Call us to come. Why would we not do so? Why would, we not, why would we not call out to the Lord who is ready to help? Earlier I alluded to the fact that Israel's God's people were to see themselves in Samson, to see Samson, to see in Samson rather, the pattern of their own unfaithfulness. That being so, were they not meant to hear this part of the story? 
in hope. Hope in the readiness of the Lord to help. Well, they not to understand that while the Lord may justly cast down his unfaithful servants, his ears are nevertheless open to his people's cries and his arm still ready to reach out to save, to reach out and demonstrate his love, his love for the unlovely. Our God is the God who desires to save and who is ready to help. If you are in any doubt of that, consider the thief on the cross. If ever there was a case that seemed undeserving, it was surely him. Someone past recovery. Surely this was the man. Initially, he even appeared in dying to be living as he had lived previously. Remember, he also cursed the Lord along with his fellow thief. Some would have said that he was too far gone to be saved. Some that it was too late for him to be saved. But it's never too late. The thief on the cross shows us that. If anyone does, he shows us the Lord's readiness to help. To help those who look to him in faith. The faith of a thief. The faiths of a fallen Samson. A judge of Israel, set apart for God, yet who often did not live up to his calling. Seeming to think that his God-given strength was his plaything. Not realizing that gifts given by God are not given so that we can do with them as we please, but to serve and care for the good of God's people. Even in his final prayer, there still seems to be a focus on self and Samson, on revenge for his blindness. And yet, in Hebrews 11, the New Testament passage on faith, at verse 32 we read this, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel, and the prophets who through their faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. John Calvin, commenting on this verse, said, of those mentioned, there was none of them whose faith did not falter. In every saint, there is always to be found something reprehensible. Nevertheless, through, though faith may be imperfect and incomplete, it does not cease to be approved by God. There is no reason, therefore, why the fault from which we labor should break us or discourage us provided we go on by faith in the race of our calling. Samson was a flawed character, but he had faith in God and was used by God to confront the Philistines. And this he did. In his death, we're told many more Philistines were killed than when he lived. Samson killed more in his death than when he had killed during his life. Samson didn't accept the way things were. He didn't accept what the rulers of Israel said to him in Judges 15 and 11. Don't you realize they said that the Philistines are rulers over us? As far as Samson was concerned, the Philistines weren't his ruler. 
God was, the God he had faith in. And so he fought. He fought the fight of faith. He didn't roll over in the face of opposition in a culture as pagan as Philistia. In a culture as pagan as Philistia. In a culture like ours today. Will we roll over? Or will we fight? Fight the good fight. Fight the fight. Run the race. Keep the faith. Will we remember Samson? Will we remember the tragedy of the Lord's servant? Whether at an individual level of self or the corporate level of the church, using his life as a warning that we might guard against self, guard against sin, guard against our own particular weaknesses, guard against living as if we are not set apart for the Lord, remembering the reality of the Lord revealed in Judges 16, remembering that the Lord is living and active, remembering where the real power lies, remembering the Holy One of Israel, remembering the Lord God Almighty, remembering the readiness of the Lord to help those such as Samson, those such as us, so undeserving in our sin, yet saved by grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the readiness of God to help those who continually and sometimes even stupidly and miserably fail the Lord, yet who know that to be cast down doesn't mean to be cast off. Those who can rejoice in hope, hope in Jesus, the hope of those who have been ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, and therefore those who are determined to go on by faith in the race of our calling, fighting the fight, running the race, keeping the faith. I repeat, fighting the fight, running the race, keeping the faith. Amen.